It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now. Steve, thanks so much for joining us on the Spirit of Sport. My pleasure, mate. Mate, I've got to ask you, because now you're here. Yep. That ball, the slower ball, was it the back of the hand? Because we used to full-on argue at school about it. It was the back of the hand, and it sort of came by accident as well. I was um, in the nets in Perth before a Shield game, and I had this long session bowling. I was bored by the end of the session. I thought, I might, I might try and muck around with a few slower balls, because I was in the one-day international team, and um, and we tried to develop these different slower balls, Simon O'Donnell and myself, and uh, I ran into bowl, and... Uh, and when I took my wrist back, I sort of twisted it around the other way, so the ball flipped out the back of my hand, and it landed perfectly. And Greg Matthews was batting, and he said, wow, man, that's a winner. That's going to get you a lot of wickets. Oh, really? And I practised it a few more times that day, and I thought, have I got the sort of uh, the courage to bowl it in the match? And it was a shield game the next day against Western Australia. And it was the last ball before lunch, and Mike Valletta was batting. He's a good mate of mine, good player. And I thought, well, why not try it? Last ball before lunch, worse than can have him go for four or six or a bowler wide. And I bowled it and it came out perfectly and he missed it and it bowled him. So I got away with the first time I ever bowled it and thought, okay, I'm going to use that uh, regularly. So that was sort of the, uh, the, the, the invention of the slow ball. Uh, Simon O'Donnell had one that came out of the side of the hand, but mine came totally out of the back of the hand. And, uh, and it's been copied by a lot of people since, so I'm happy it worked okay. Because up until then, was it... Were, you just, were people just bowling before the crease, just coming back a little bit? Was that, was that... Yeah, there was different... F- Forms of the slow ball, like the sort of the off spinner, or they bowl a yard back from the crease. Um, the guy who had the best slow ball back in my era was a guy called Franklin Stevenson. He played a bit for the West Indies, but then went on a rebel tour, so he didn't play a lot of international cricket. But he was legendary on the county circuit. And uh, the first time I played against him, I was playing for Somerset, um, and I think he was playing for Northamptonshire or one of those teams. And anyway, he came in in his big West Indian, about six foot ten, had these massive hands, and the ball just you couldn't see it in his hand and I knew he was going to bowl at some stage, and he and he bowled this ball, and I, I just thought, I thought he hadn't delivered the ball because he, he sort of wrapped it in the palm of his hand, so he couldn't see it. And I just ducked. I, I didn't even know where the ball was, and I got hit plumb in front uh, of the stump. So he was um, the guy that really uh, invented the slow ball, and from that there was different variations. And mine, of course, was different because it came out of the back of the hand. So different uh, that era now. Like looking back at some of those games, no helmet, no like the, the bravery. I don't know if it's bravery. Or yeah. <laughs> well, there was no helmets, I suppose, back in those days. So I think um, I think John Dyson had a. Did he have the helmet from? Well, they had a skull cap. Sinel Gavaskar had this like skull cap wrapped around, and then Tony Greek had the um, like a bike helmet, and then we had these perspex around the front. So it sort of evolved um, in the. 70s, late 70s, early 80s, I guess. And um, and it took a while because cricket was sort of this game where it, it was tough and you couldn't show any sign of weakness. So a lot of guys refused to wear helmets. Viv Richards never wore a helmet. Um, and my, when I went to England on the first two in the Ashes in 89, we made a conscious decision, the top six batsmen, not to wear helmets to show that uh, you know, we're, up, we're up for the fight and we weren't going to be weren't gonna lay down against the Poms because we were considered rank underdogs and the worst team to step foot on English soil. So... All through that six test match series, uh, the top six batsmen didn't wear helmets. Uh, but after that, pretty much everyone uh, realised that you're playing for your profession and it is dangerous and it'd be silly not to wear helmets. Everyone wears them now. No, absolutely. I, I don't know if you recall the era when, when I was playing at St George, they used to wear um, torpedoes. Do you remember those? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> those big bike bags. Yeah, yeah, on the legs, yeah. 
Bit extra protection, eh? The extra protection. I remember going to the coach. Oh. I remember saying, I was saying, cricketers don't wear helmets. We're, we're wearing these. <laughs> and you'd be boiling in them, mate. Oh, yeah. What about just... the shoulder pad? Did you guys wear the sh- always wear we're... shoulder pads? Or... Yeah, yeah. I always shoulder pads, yeah. Were they any value at all? Or? Nah, not at all. No. Not at all. I felt freer with, without yeah. them, but they were, they were pretty um, <laughs> restricting. Mate, I want to talk the spirit of sport, that, uh, of the spirit of India, sorry, because it's, a, it's an amazing book. Just before then, just got some quick fire 10 questions. So mm-hmm. whatever comes to mind first. First concert Sounds dangerous yes. <laughs> um, First concert I remember was um, Midnight Oil in uh, in the UK Wow was, so you didn't get a one here Well first. I would have been my, I guess my first memorable Our first concert would have been um, Someone like uh, Dragon at the Rizzi Roundhouse Oh, that was my first concert, Dragon. You might have been the same one. <laughs> you were too young now, mate. What were you I doing stuck out? in the Saints Leagues yeah. <laughs> um, What was your first job? Um, it was on the council on, on the tree gang. We used to uh, cut down the trees and then shove them in that mulch in the back. So you got to be, to be careful. You sort of let go of the tree branch, otherwise you'd lose your arm in the mulch. So working on the council uh, a couple of days a week and then into a cricket umpiring. Oh, nice. I was an umpire too. I was a, I was a professional. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember Bill McRitchie at all? The, uh, no. the, 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 the test was – it was – it was a very in-depth test okay. to be a, a, a one-day, I mean, an umpire, but yeah. uh, it, was, it was pretty good pay. What's your most embarrassing moment? Oh, there's many. I think when uh, we lost a one-day game in New Zealand and I bowled the last over and a guy, um, Wilson, who played for the uh, the All Blacks as well, so he's a dual international, I forget his first name uh, now, but um, anyway, he hit the winning runs with me and, I, and the crowd came on the field and I was getting back-slapped and whacked and whatever. Came in the dressing room, sort of steam came out of my ears. So I went to kick the ground, and I had still had my full spikes on, but I'd forgotten it was a concrete floor. So I sort of kicked the ground, and all these sparks flew up, and I flew up in the air and landed on my backside in front of the rest of the team. And it was like that 10 seconds where they don't know what to do, then everyone bursts out laughing, and <laughs> you realise you're a complete and utter idiot. Do you have a favourite movie? Um, yeah, like... Um well, I always liked, um, you know, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory when I was growing up. That was huge. But um, more so now, someone like uh, Mel Gibson. I love Mel Gibson films like Apocalypto. I like that. Yeah, I love that. Pet hate? Um, excuses. A person from history you'd like to have met? Um, let me think. Um, well, really, uh, I was going to say Bradman, but I met him once. But I would like to spend more time with him. But... Um, Oh, the person I'd love to meet is David Attenborough. He's still alive, obviously, 94, but I think he's had the most amazing and interesting life. He's got a new series out on uh, on Netflix. Have you? you I love all his stuff. It's yeah, so yeah, good. Yeah, it's amazing. Incredible. Something you wish you were better at? Uh, technology. <laughs> <laughs> the thing you did growing up that made your parents the most upset? Uh, probably smashing windows regularly. Um, ours, next-door neighbours, anything. We, we'd break a lot of windows, so that, that probably made them pretty upset. <laughs> A lesson that's taken you the longest to learn? Um, I guess being a parent is uh, is the hardest lesson that we all have, the hardest challenge, and that's that goes that's ongoing. So um, I think that's the hardest lesson or, or, or skill to have is to be a really good parent. What what kind of parent are you? I'm probably the good guy. I don't like. Uh, Dishing out the discipline, so I, I get the, I sort really? of, yeah. So it's the other way around. My wife's sort of the disciplinarian. I, I, I'm the good cop, so um, it doesn't always work. So I probably should need a bit more discipline in my parenting. Is there a stage there where, with because I've got a son, like I've got an 18 month old, but uh, yep. you know, your son's older. And is there a stage there where it changes from parent to sort of friend and that type of thing, or does it always? Yeah, you've got to have that balance. I mean, you've you've got to realise that 
you are the parent and then you've got to set the example and you can't always be the friend the whole time. Um, and that, that's, a, that's a challenge in parenting because um, you want to be their mates and look after them and take care of them. And at the same stage, you've got to uh, teach them lessons and you've got to set examples and you've got to be a disciplinarian, which is difficult for some people, including myself. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to have that, that conversation. Like, yeah. But you were great at, in cricket. You were, you were just like... <laughs> you were just well, like, I knew I was a captain, so I had to listen. Yeah. Um, there's, there's no captain when you're a parent, that's for sure. <laughs> that's right. Mate, I've, I've, I was speaking to a uh, mutual friend, uh, Jock Campbell, and uh, mm-hmm. he obviously he was your trainer for, for quite a few years and, until they found someone better. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, about five years. So I was lucky because we're, we're great uh, personal trainers. There was Jock and a guy called Dave Misson, and they actually extended a lot of um, careers in, in my area because... I played till I was 38, but I was probably fitter at the back end of my career than when I was at the start because we had no one helping and I wasn't... I didn't believe in a lot of physical training. I like training with a ball involved. So under Bob Simpson, we do a lot of fitness by catching and fielding, so I love doing it that way. But if someone told me to run four or five laps, so I'd, I'd hate it. So I had to be sort of stimulated in a different way to, to do my fitness and we're lucky we had some really good fitness trainers. I think that, I think that you know, even with footy, like the best, the most enjoyable fitness sessions you have, which are really hard, but they're ones where you're playing simulated type games because otherwise mate you're just running around laps it's yeah. just Jesus boring yeah that's right well, with Bob Simpson we always call it the disguise running so we did he hit 20 balls to each each fieldsman like he'd stand out there and he'd, he'd hit you 20 catches in a row so he'd run from one side to the other so well he turned out these amazing catches all of a sudden you've probably racked up over 2k's in running so that was the way I liked doing it he, he said to ask you, Jock said to ask you about Maddie Hayden kicking a chair at the SCG <laughs> after he got out. I don't think Haydos would want me to talk through that one, but um, it was quite funny. I mean, Haydos came in and I don't know what the situation of the game was, but he wasn't happy with the way he got out and came in and sort of kicked the door and, and shattered a bit of the glass, pane of glass for that, so that was a bad start. And when he came inside the dressing room further, he went to kick one of these chairs and had like a, a slot in the back of it and somehow he got his foot wedged in there. And we're all watching and sort of laughing, and this is this is good. And um, and he couldn't get it out. So after about two minutes, he finally turned around and said, "Can you bloody can you help me get my foot out?" <laughs> he said, "No." Nah. Anyway, we eventually did, but we sort of made him suffer for a few more minutes. Mate, speaking of, of, of letting someone suffer, when you brushed Gilly with that high five after you won the yeah. he scored hundred. Well, I didn't see him to tell you the truth. I mean, oh, I was in my own world, and you sort of get caught up in moments when you're playing sport, and that was yeah. one of those ones where. Four of the last ball, and I was aware of everyone being around me, but I didn't take in a lot of the noise, and I was sort of in my own world. And when I hit that four, it, um, it was just a massive pressure release, and uh, and the noise sort of got turned back up to full volume. I could hear the crowd, everyone going berserk. And as I ran down the pitch, Gilly was so excited, he went for the high five, but I was just sort of concentrating on the ball going for four and taking in the crowd involved. And I just I didn't even see him <laughs> go for the high five till I actually watched the replay probably a few weeks later, and then I. I, I I said my apology afterwards. I said, sorry, mate, I didn't even know you were going for a high five. But <laughs> he sort of went for this and got this air high five and air. sort of pirouetted in the air by himself. But, mate, you talk about crowds, but, like, what's it like to – you played in India, like, 90,000 a day. Was it Eden Garden? Like, I mean, yeah. well, we've played – I've played in some big crowds, but, you know, it's an hour and it's gone. and it's mm. But you're there consistently there all day, day yeah. after day. Yeah, that's, that's a highlight to play in front of that sort of crowd. I mean, we did that in the 87 World Cup. We had 100,000 people at Eden Gardens again, where we won against uh, India, against uh, England in the final. But, yeah, the test match in 2001, where um, we were going for the 17th test win in a, while and, uh, in a row, and then Dravid and Laxman put in this amazing partnership and beat us, but... 
the highlight for me was you know ninety five thousand people came every day for five days in a row. So it was nearly nearly half a million people watched the game, and they were just from before the game to after the game it was constant noise and chatter, and you couldn't hear yourself think. I mean, as a captain, it is hard work because when Tendulkar or, or La, Tendulkar or Laxman or Dravid are scoring runs. The crowd are basically in a frenzy. They're out of control. And the noise is just deafening. So as a captain, you know, if I'm at Gully, I can't even get the attention of the guy at cover. He can't hear me. So I've got a hand signal. So you really are relying on your players to watch you. And that's not always the case, particularly the fast bowlers who drift off down at fine leg and third man who, you know, in their own world and you're trying to get their attention for two minutes. But, yeah, it's a real challenge as a captain. Take me back to your first experience you're getting off the plane, you, you get to India, and because you, you said in, in the spirit of India, you said it was like mm. landing on a different planet. Mm. Yeah, it was. Um, 21 year old, never been to India before, never been to the subcontinent. Um, you turn up at um, Bombay Airport back in those days, now it's Mumbai. Get off the plane, and first thing hits you is the smell. It, the, every country has a unique smell in a lot of ways, it? and India in mm. particular has that smell, and it's like, okay, this is different. Um, <laughs> Get on the team bus and we're off to the Taj Hotel in Mumbai, which is in Bombay, which is about an hour's drive through the traffic. And you hop on that bus, and I always like to get at the front of the bus because even back then I was inquisitive as to what was going on outside. And I took a camera. Not many players had a camera back in those days, and I had my Canon camera. So I'd look and just see whether there's any shots to take. And and I was just um, blown away by what I saw. There was traffic zigzagging everywhere. Not one car was staying in the lane. It was just uh, chaotic scenes of the traffic. Red lights meant nothing. People sped up through red lights, pedestrian crossings, no one stopped in the car, so it was just madness on the road. And then you look on the footpath and there's just people swarming everywhere. There was lots of beggars and and people struggling to make a, a living. There was cats and dogs and rats and monkeys and all sorts of animals running around. And then you'd see a game of cricket being played in the alleyway or, or in the park. It was just um, a real assault on your senses. And, and, you know, if you would have had a, had a picture of... Year, fast forward X amount of years and you're back there now taking a, taking these glorious photos because the spirit mm. of cricket that the spirit of India here I'm telling you it's like it's it's it is a book but it's it's mm. so much more than a book saying it's a book doesn't really do it justice it's it's the photos are just like they're breathtaking I've been through it twice I read it twice thanks um, and it's yeah I mean it's something particularly to be proud of but gee, I learnt a lot too you know yeah I think that's all part of it I wanted to capture not only the spirit of cricket and why cricket is religion but maybe the spirit of India and the people because um, it's a real cross section of people involved in the game and it is a religion over there there's 1.4 billion people who are obsessed by the game and for the 800 million people or 850 million people who live below the poverty line uh, it gives them some joy in life that they feel connected to the national team when they're doing well they feel good about themselves and it's something bigger than their own lives. And um, you know, it's easy to play. You just need to bat in the ball. And if you've got the right attitude and enthusiasm and energy, you can get a game started anywhere. And you can see that in the book. I've taken photos um, you know, in, the, in the slum areas, uh, in the mountains, on the beaches, in the deserts, in a Maharaja's palace. Um, so You played cricket in Mar- Maharaja's palace. Yeah, that was, that was a bit of a strange one, that. It was just sort of... And India's like that, things just happen that you don't expect, so you've yep. got to expect the unexpected. I knew that would happen, um, but we went to the Maharaja's Palace in the place called Baroda, or it's called Vedadora now, but, um, and met the Maharaja there, and really nice guy. His palace is amazing. It's it's bigger than Buckingham Palace, and they're the only Maharajas living in a palace in India now. So he showed us around this amazing palace, took some great photos, and I thought, well, that's nice, but I haven't really got that photo I want because I want to capture what the spirit of cricket is I don't, I don't just want a picture of the palace 
And I knew he was an ex-first-class cricket player, this, the Maharaja. And his name was Sam Singh, but he said straight away, just call me Sam. So that, that was good, a good start. And I said, Sam, when's the last time you had a game of cricket in the Palace? He goes, well, probably when I was about 15 or 16, which was 45 years ago. I said, well, why don't we have a game? <laughs> and he jumped at the chance. It was like it took him back to his childhood and a bat and ball was summoned and all the next minute we're in the main dining room. And uh, it's not your normal dining room. It's um, <laughs> You knock over some stuff there. No, it's got the Ming vases behind us. It had a, an amazing portrait painting of his grandfather who was responsible for starting cricket in, in Baroda. Uh, and these, or, these amazing chandeliers, ornate wood, wood panelling all over the place. And, um, and we were straight into a game of cricket. And his wife was panicking because the ball was bouncing off these photos and <laughs> off these vases. But um, It's a great shot. We had the time of our lives playing. And it was, it was a great experience. D- you know, there was, there's so much in the book that moved me. Um, you know, having a sister who with... I've got a sister with special needs mm-hmm. and, and, you know, it really moved me, some of the stuff. The Magic Bus Kids, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, they're, they're, it's an amazing project in, in Mumbai and I, I knew these kids because I'm part of this group called the Laureus World Sports Academy and we do... We have um, a couple, 150 projects in 40 countries around the world and one of those projects is called the Magic Bus Program in Mumbai and it was set up by an Englishman called Matthew Spacey, a really good bloke. Um, his idea was to collect these kids from the slums, pick them up in a bus, and then to give them sporting activities, um, mentoring, schooling, education, um, and they learn these amazing life skills. And a lot of those kids now are, are mentors in their own community, and his program has been rolled out all through India. So it's a great program called the Magic Bus Program. And um, so I'd known of these kids, and I played with them three or four times before, and I wanted to get a shot um, of them playing in uh, their natural environment, which was in the Dharavi slum. And the adjoining um, uh, space where we took a photo was called the Bandra Wally Pipeline. So there's amazing pipes that go from uh, like a, cup, a couple of miles, and uh, we played a game of cricket below these pipe pipelines. Um, I remember seeing that. that was, that's, a, that's a magnificent shot. Those pipelines just go for ages. Yeah, it's, the, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> and I've, I've driven past them many times on my trips to yeah. India, and um, and I thought one day, just I'd love to go down and see what happens around there. So there's all these kids playing cricket. So we had a game cricket with these kids from the Magic Bus program. Then we went back into the Dharavi slum, and I like to call it Dharavi because it's not. It's a slum because there's millions of people there, but their spirit is incredible, those people, and uh, they get on with life and they're happy and they haven't got much, but um, they've got a really positive attitude. So then we had some, a game of cricket with the, with the kids on the, on the streets there and it, uh, all of a sudden it became packed. There was like thousands of people watching us and with this impromptu game of cricket. Have there been, have there been any initiatives from actual Indian cricket players for, that, for their own people? That you're aware um, of? I think they do bits and pieces. It is hard, and people say, why don't they do more? But... Mm. Yeah, Tendulkar and Dravid are good mates of mine, but the problem is if they're seen to do something, then they get, they get inundated by thousands of other charities all wanting them to do something different. So I think a lot of the times they do it discreetly, um, maybe. discreetly and away from But But probably not... Uh, get, I think with their power, they could they could do more. It's, um, you know, an Indian cricketer is such that they're on this amazing pedestal and they can actually make real and genuine change, but it, it does take a lot of work and it's um, it's not easy to do so. I'm not walking in their shoes, so it's, um, it's probably hard for me to comment, but um, yeah. you know, they are capable of hu- huge change. There's a, there's a picture in there of this three-year-old Shahid. Is it Shahid? Is that, is yeah, it? young Shahid, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he looked like a bit of a prodigy. Yeah, well... His technique and everything just looked amazing. Yeah, he was great. I mean, and we found... We did a lot of research before I went away, so there's things, certain things I wanted to, to put in place before I went there, and um, we found this young boy on Instagram. And uh, a three-year-old kid. And that's the great thing about social media these days in India where in the past he may never have been noticed or found, but now mm. he's got his own Instagram page and 
he's known all around the world. So we found him and went to his village and his dad met us um, in his village outside of Calcutta. We, he met us about a, a kilometre away from his house because it was sort of down a winding pathway and past some swamp land uh, to get to his little house in the village. And, uh, and people must have known we were coming because he led us through the village and all of a sudden there was a throng of people behind us that kept getting bigger and bigger and then we finally got to his terrace, little terraced house in the in the countryside and um, all his family were there, extended family, so there was like 30 or 4 people in his house and I'm just wondering, where, where's young Shahid? And all of a sudden he was standing at my feet, he sort of worked his way down the stairs past the people and was just standing there. And he was a classic little kid, I mean he had his whites on and his dad wanted to present him well so he bought him a pair of soccer boots, he had his lime green pair of soccer boots on. <laughs> went into his bedroom where he does all his bit of his practice and it's only a small space probably three or four meters by four or five meters and with his bed there and we got him playing some shots and it was so it was me his dad uh trent park who was my photography coach an amazing photographer mm. and a guy called andre major who was a videographer in the test series on amazon capturing all the footage and uh so there's four of us in the room we tried to get him to play some shots, which he did, because he's a three-year-old. I forget, he's just out of his nappies, basically. And, um, you know, he's going to get short attention span, so he got some good shots in. And then he, just like any three-year-old, just um, didn't want to be there anymore. So he got his plastic bat and he was starting to whack into Andre. He was stuck in the corner with his camera, with his filming and all, and he was belling with his plastic bat. Then he turned around and jumped at Trent Park and latched on his leg and put his fangs into his, into his calf muscle. <laughs> Oh, that's right. so and the dad was, was, oh, yeah. so, was he was worried that yeah, oh, I, I'd, I'd escaped so I was laughing and his dad said oh, okay and his mum came in and said, took him out and gave him some cookies and a glass of milk to settle him down <laughs> so there's only three of us left in the room and I turned around all of a sudden or four of us and his dad was crying his eyes out and I think what have we done here he, yeah, yeah. he thought because um, he, he misbehaved in front of me that his chance of being a superstar was gone that I'd yeah. reflect badly on him so I, was, I read that I, read I that, sort of yeah. calmed him and asked him mate it's okay he's a three year old I understand and it, it's all okay and he was alright after that so but that just shows how much cricket means to people and, and they see it as an opportunity to, to get out of poverty for a lot of those families what would be the pathway potentially for him. Um, well, I think you go obviously get noticed at school. Uh, they get, do get noticed in India now. They got you know, BCCI run cricket in the world cricket in India. Now. So a lot of money. There's a lot of facilities being created, pathway programs, coaching. So the chances are most kids will get identified these days. And now that um, he's well known, that um, he would have caught the attention of the local cricket authorities. But he would go to school, play in the school team, and and get selected from there. Pretty much like you do in Australia. Well, I was reading about. Um you know Mozart. He was he was three year old when he, he actually learnt the violin. Mm. And so, so I think young people are very they're very. Can you believe? And composing by five. Yeah, well, that's which is, I mean that's unthinkable. But yeah, yeah. you're right. I mean, uh, they learn quickly. And this young yeah. boy, uh, in fact, one of the shots I took in the book was um, he wants to invent the one handed cover drive. So he puts one hand behind his back and plays a cover drive with one hand. So in the book, there's a shot of him on his rooftop, and his dad's put this netting up on the roof so he doesn't lose the balls. But he was there practicing his one handed cover drive while I was there. Well, speaking of that, you, you, you covered a lot of sport with disability over there as well, mm. the blind cricketers, but but also some other people with physical disabilities. Yeah. And yep. that, that looked pretty amazing to be part of. Yeah, some of my favourite photographs, the physically challenged cricketers, and um, yeah, that, was, that blew me away. I was sort of um, at the same ground. I was photographing this other young boy, an eight-year-old, um, Cheyenne, who's an amazing young cricketer who practices 30 hours, 30 hours a week. So we had to try and coordinate things, so we had a limited time, 17 days. So I was photographing him, then I turned around and went out to this pitch in the middle and um, I sort of wasn't concentrating on where I was and all of a sudden I turned around and these, 
I saw these guys flying through the air like ninja warriors and they had these bamboo poles about six foot long. They were landing on these poles and sort of going over the top like a pole vaulter and bowling the ball. And I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. And then I took a bit of time to look at these guys and they were the physically challenged cricketers who were sort of missing part limbs or having polio or um, you know, physically challenged. And um, But they were just amazing athletes. And to get their photo correctly, I needed some help because I was with Trent Park who was... Um, an ex-cricketer, but now is the only Australian ever to be invited to the Magnum Photo Agency. He came with me and was teaching me how to get better photographs and get in the right position. And I was snapping away at these guys, and he said, no, you've got to get down low and get them above uh, the tree line, which was behind them, so they got clear air, so they looked like mm. they're flying through the air like a almost like a ninja warrior. And uh, the shots I got, I'm really proud of it. It does them justice, because they are the most amazing athletes I've seen. And they were damn good cricketers. Because you had to go as, as a blind cricketer as well. Which Very poorly, which, you know, which, you'll see in a, which you'll see shortly on November 17 on ABC. On ABC, yeah, I can't wait for that. Capturing cricket, out. yeah. Look, I, um, I was a very poor blind cricketer. I think I had two balls out of about 20 and just realised how difficult it is when you take one of your senses away. And sight is um, obviously something you take for granted when you've got it, but when you haven't got it, it, um, it makes everything else extremely difficult. Everything else is heightened and obviously you, the, the, you know, the sounds were the key in playing blind cricket because they roll the ball, which has got like a rattle inside it. So you've got to get down low and do a sweeping shot, but you've got to judge the pace of the ball and where it is by picking up the sound, and um, I wasn't very good at it. It's worth noting on that documentary that uh, it's directed by Nell, Nell Minchin, who mm. is Tim Minchin's uh, sister, but uh, she just directed, co-directed a, a, a documentary with a very good friend of mine, Wayne Blair. He did the, uh, the Sapphires and yep. a Top End Wedding, and they've just won a pretty big festival in Adelaide. So she's a great get for your, for your documentary. Yeah, no, it was, um, they're That's a good great. team there. Um, she spent a bit of time in... Uh, mother had some illness, so she wasn't there doing the interviews, unfortunately. But, um, yeah, she was a big supporter of the project. And it came by accident, really. I mean, it was a last-minute thing because I was there to take photographs and create this book uh, and an exhibition, which is now on as well. But um, I just thought... I was in England with the Asher side um, and the guy was capturing all his footage behind the scenes for the test series and a good bloke called Andre and uh, literally three weeks before I went to India I thought I may as well get someone to film it while I'm there because there's going to be some great stuff and rang him up and said mate do you want to come with me on this great adventure and thankfully he said yes and he captured 30 hours of this incredible footage. Isn't that great? Just on that, um, you can see great pics from, from your journey in India. It's on at uh, the Playbox, which is 21 Oxford Street in Paddington. It's up until uh, January the 11th, actually. Yeah, that's great. right. Yeah, so I think it's open Wednesday through to Sunday, not open uh, Monday and Tuesday. But yeah, um, someone will be there most times. Hopefully, I'll be there quite a bit. And you can have a look at the photographs, um, make a donation to the Steve Orr Foundation. Or you can also buy a book there. Where, where did it start, Steve? The, the um, You've got an affinity, you've got a love for, for India. Where? You know, compassion to empathy for them. Where, 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 where did it start? Don't know, to tell you the truth. Those sort of things just happen. Uh, when I was in India, exposed to sites you'd never seen before. Mm. I'd, um, I'd always been interested in days off to go different places. So I went to orphanages and different charities, various charities. Met Mother Teresa on my journeys in India. What was that experience like? Yeah, yeah. yeah it was pretty surreal when you, I think back on it. And it happened pretty simply. Um, I'd done an article with a guy called Robert Craddock, who now is on TV quite a bit, and uh, one of the questions was, who would you the most like to meet? And I just said Mother Teresa. And we were in, in Calcutta on this particular trip. He was a journalist over there. He said, you know you, know you can actually meet her. And he said, you've just got to get, go to the Sisters of the Missionaries of Charity Motherhouse in Calcutta. You can, anyone can go there, and you can witness an early morning mass. And I went there, and um, 
by amazing coincidence, the photographer who went with me was Trent Park. He was on this recent Who was on that? Oh, right. He came with me and uh, he was told you can't take any photographs, but as a photographer, he thought, well, I'll snap one, one frame off. And he got one frame of me <laughs> meeting Mother Teresa, which um, is now at the exhibition as well at, um, in at Oxford Street. But it's weird how life works. And um, so we went early one morning, about five in the morning, got up and uh, witnessed this amazing early morning mass. Mother Teresa was there. All the nuns were there. And it was this sort of old building in Calcutta and had like um, um, slats on the windows and the light was sort of filtering through all these slats. It was a really... Um, they, looked, they, did, they, they really looked like angels with this light coming through on these nuns. And then Mother Teresa appeared and I met her very briefly and it was... Um, I don't consider myself a religious person, but I just um, meeting her was was something special, and she did have an aura and a presence about her. Mm. It was very brief. She knew who I was. Someone told her I was, a, you know, with the Australian cricket side, and we exchanged a few words, and then off she went um, out the back beyond this curtain with her bare feet, and I just remember her being very tiny with, I thought, like rheumatoid arthritis in her fingers and her toes, and but she was. Uh, everyone was sort of um, in awe of her presence, and there was people dropping on the ground and. You know, at her feet, and it was um, wow. a moment um, that sort of had a huge impact because from there I sort of said, well, maybe I can get some way involved in charity. And the next time I was in India, I got involved at Udayan, which is a rehabilitation centre for kids who have leprosy or their parents have leprosy, and that then led me into the Steve Waugh Foundation in Australia, which has been going for the last 17 years. We look after kids with rare diseases. Speaking of, you've got a, a, a very... Can I just say thank you, firstly, as a, as a former athlete, like just to... To see a guy who has used his platform, you know, selflessly, mm. I've got to say, Steve, like, there, there should be more of you and it, it, it convicts... <laughs> no, there should be, mate, because, because you know, I, I think, you know, we're, we're living in a pretty self-obsessed sort mm. of country, you know, sure. where self is always first and yeah. I don't think people realise that actually when you start to give and start to... Mm. That's when your world expands, do you know what oh, I mean? Oh, it does, yeah, and, and, and amazing opportunities come from that and you meet incredible people and uh, I often say that people here are your role models the role models to me are the kids that we support in the Steve Wall Foundation because Renee tell us about yeah they do it tough and yeah there's Renee there's hundreds of kids I could mention but they all have these life debilitating conditions but they just get on with it and they don't complain and and they have this incredible positive attitude and their families um, dealt these tough cards but they've got to just get on with life and um to me, they're the real stars and the real uh, role models we should be aspiring to, not uh, necessarily the sports people or the celebrities or the movie stars, but um, these real grounded people who do a tough each and every day but don't complain. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there's a real danger moving, you know, in this whole new social media world of, you know, people famous because because they're famous. <laughs> and it's like, you know, like especially I've got to, I've got to say is particularly, you know, I feel for a lot of younger girls growing up where, you know, their, their role models should be... Should be People that have you know yeah. really achieved something as distinct from how much yeah well how much flesh be, I can that'll, show that'll, that'll be your challenge as a parent going <laughs> forward for sure because it is there is lots of pressure on teenage kids these pressure. days and how they look and what they've got and whether they've got the right material possessions and you know, the right iPhone and those sort of things and it seems to be and it is important for kids because that is their perception on the world it is yeah how do you how do you balance that how do you like you go to India and you and also with your chari- your charity mm. here then. You know, we, we live a good life, but ha, how do you how do you sort of balance mm. that the the dream that we live and and yet the the poverty and yet the challenges and yeah, the, look, there's nothing wrong with aspiring to 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 be successful and if things come along from that, like you're owning a nice house Absolutely. or a car, that, there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. But no, as long as you're aware yeah. of, um, you know, you are in a privileged position and you can make a difference in other people's lives as well. And if you have an opportunity, I mean, I think you should try and do that because. 
you can have a big impact. And as you say, it opens your world up. You meet all these people and have these great experiences, and all of a sudden, the things you thought were important or mattered a lot don't actually matter as much. And um, you know, I try and stay around um, people who've got really good positive attitudes. And if someone's got a negative attitude, then I don't really want to be a part of it. And and negative press doesn't affect me anymore. It probably did a bit when I was playing, but now I sort of water off a duck's back because I know that it's not really real and it's not important. You know, there's a photo, if I can get back to your book, there's a, there's a photo there of, in front of the Taj Mahal, and there's quite a story <laughs> leading into getting that photo. Yeah, well, I knew when I... This project, I knew I had to get a photo of the Taj Mahal. I've been there a number of times, and it is something that everyone hopefully should see once in their lifetime. It is an incredible man-made structure. Um, but, yeah, I wanted to get there early, and uh, Trent was saying you've got to get the first light. First hour is the most important of the last hour of the day, so we wanted to get it at that sunrise, so we got up early, and it was a five-hour drive from the hotel, so we left, like, 3.30 in the morning to get there, and... Um, we didn't do the research, obviously, on the weather at the time of the year because it was totally fogged in and we could just see the task, but we couldn't get a photo of kids playing cricket in front of the task because you couldn't really see it. Um, so waited a couple of hours, couldn't get it. Thankfully, we got some shots on the way back to the, the hotel in Delhi on the road because we stopped off often and just took photos of kids playing on the, on the side of the road. But, yeah, 10-hour trip, no photo of the Taj. Got home, we were on a tight schedule because we had to do nine plane flights and visit 10 or 11 cities in 17 days. And um, oh, I've got to go back. I've got to get a photo. So Trent myself the next day got up again at 3.30 in the morning and said to the driver, we took a car this time instead of a bus because we had seven people travelling with us. said to the guy, you've got to get us the task quickly. We don't want a five-hour trip. And he saw that as a chance to be the next Lewis Hamilton. And, man, it was just uh, pretty hairy for four <laughs> hours. He was zigzagging in traffic and it was crazy stuff. But we got there and it was this beautiful day of the Taj and um, took all these photos and... And the cover of the book, it's, it's almost like 3D. It sort of appeared in the background, but it was just amazingly lit up. It was just the perfect light, and there was some games of cricket happening in front of it. So, you know, I think the 18-hour round trip to get the photo was, was definitely worth it. Mate, mate it was, because really it captures this book, like, to a T. To a T, like, it captures yeah, the essence well, I, of the book. I hope so. But I guess it's the thing about perseverance I learned from playing sport. Don't give up, and, you know, it was a... It could have been easy to sleep in the next morning and not get the shot, but I would have regretted it for the rest of my life. So I'm glad I went back. So t- uh, you're talking about giving up and you talk- never giving up and so forth. You've been doing a little bit of mentoring with with uh, Justin Langer and and so forth. Do you think have you have you been enjoying enjoying that? Um, yeah, I've done it. What I really enjoyed after cricket was being involved in different sports and being a athlete liaison officer at the Olympics with John Eels and um, and Lane Beach and and people like that was. That was the greatest three weeks of my life, you know, going to London and Beijing and rooming with John Eels in a little small room and we were the mentors. And He's a big man. Yeah, he? he was, yeah. yeah. And it was funny because both, like, our, both our like? wives, we both said, look, sorry if we snore because our wives apparently were telling us if we snore. We had 20 days of perfect sleep. Neither of us snored, so I don't know what's going on there. But <laughs> we had a perfect time. But yeah, that was great, uh, being part of that and, and mentoring eight or nine different teams within that Olympic team was, you know, the, some of the best couple of weeks of my life both times in, in London and Beijing and then I had the chance to be with Justin Langerside last year in the Ashes so I like being a mentor and behind the scenes and hopefully giving the guys a bit of a roadmap to success that I learnt um, which can hopefully quicken up their process because it took me 10 to 15 years to work it out and now hopefully I can, I can impart that a lot quicker. In what way? In what, what do you mean? Can you expand on that? Like, would you? Oh well I, I was a big believer in working out for myself. I didn't listen to you know, I listen to coaches and other players, but I tried to work things out my way, and it took a bit more time. But when you do that, I think you have more success down at the back end. So I did that as a player and as a captain, really, that 
I didn't really consult too many other people. I tried to work it out for myself. Maybe it's a stubborn streak, I don't know, but I wanted to, as a captain, uh, if I was going to make a mistake, make it my original mistake, not someone else's mistake. So it took some time to work it out, and then I think I've got a bit of a blueprint now which I can pass on to people in sport. Did you have a, a favourite coach? or? Um, I think Bob Simpson was the best coach I had because he knew something about everything involved in the game. He was an amazing knowledge on the game. Um, you know, he, had, he had his, obviously, strengths and other parts he wasn't so good at. But uh, overall, I think he's the best cricket coach I've ever had like a, as a general knowledge and, uh, and knowing the game inside out. Coaches can make a huge, huge difference on you know younger people growing up. I found like my coach was was like a mentor to mm. me. You look at you look at the impact of it. Look at say for example with Wayne Bennett and his his legacy. Look at Queensland beating the Blues, which was <laughs> which was devastating. Did you watch the game? I did. Oh, yeah, like it, it's you hate to say you could see those things coming, but as soon as the underdogs and people write them off, you know they're going to play well. And you're right, that's so many good, good players still and uh, great coaches, say, with, with Wayne. But I think he brings calmness and people feel they're relaxed around a person like that and all of a sudden they can play their natural game. They're not uptight. I think that's a big thing about mentoring is it make feel people relaxed and calm and say, it's, it's OK, I've been there before, it's, it's OK to feel nervous and whatever, but you'll go through it. Sometimes you just need someone to stand beside you and almost hold your hand and say, it's going to be OK. Oh, absolutely. And do you, do you find that you're the kind of person that, as you've grown a bit older, you're a bit more vulnerable about... Maybe your life, your weaknesses, or do you, yeah, do you hold I, things I, close I, to your chest? Or? I still, I guess, I think it learns the sports people to compartmentalise and put them in boxes and mm. not show your weakness too much. But um, I think now, as you get older, you can show a bit more of yourself and, and let people know, hang on, I went through that and it was tough and I, I struggled as well. So I think when I say that to younger players, they feel a lot better because it's, it's almost as if I didn't, they think I didn't go through any of those tough times or I never had uh, any self-doubts and, in fact, Everyone has those, just handled in different ways. I remember Alan Langer before uh, before he used to play, he used to throw up for every game. Just throw up. He was, he was I think, still one of the greatest halfbacks. Should mm. be an immortal, in my yeah. humble opinion. Um, and, and so I, I think the message is always like you experience fear, but you, you've got to do things afraid. Yeah, you've you just got to do things afraid. Yeah, bloody well, hell! I mean, he's, he's on the field more than the players in Orange. You've got to get rid of him. He's an extra player. I don't know how he gets on the field so many times. He drives me nuts. I've sent him a few messages like, get off oh, the field, man. will you? Get off the field. It's over, mate. He's done more. He gets more time than the players. <laughs> do, you, do, you think, uh, do you think, I'm not talking about Alfie in particular, yeah. but was it? What, um, yeah, a lot of players do sort of struggle once they retire. And, and yeah. Was that ever something with you? Did you miss? Because I really missed the, um, mm. the, the, the boys, the training, the, the, that, that camaraderie. I, I really struggled a bit, actually. Yeah, I think everyone misses that camaraderie and that sense of purpose and you're, you're trying to achieve something special. But... No, I walked away pretty, pretty, pretty um, easily because I'd been there 18 years. I think sports people struggle to walk away when either the, the career's curtailed through injury or they haven't uh, fulfilled their potential for whatever mm. reason. But I was lucky enough to play and I, I gave everything and I left nothing out there and I was sort of ready to go into the next phase of life. I'd, I'd written some books before and done some entrepreneurial stuff and started a charity, had three kids, so there was lots of things to concentrate on. I think you've got to stay busy when you retire and you've got to have... Purpose, and you've got to have um, something. What you wake up every day and say, "I'm keen, I'm passionate, I want to get stuck into that." So you've got to have a project or a, a purpose or a, or a hobby or an interest. And if you think about your career and what might have been, then uh, you, you definitely will go through depression. You know, you know, you, uh, you guys. I was reading in your book that it, it surprised me, um, and I do remember it. But I remember it, it just it brought it back how long you guys were away from your family. Mm. Like, was it? 
It's, it was half the year. It was, oh, was it more half than the, that. More was, than half the year. Yeah, when, at, at the peak, I mean, I was sleeping in uh, hotel beds like one year, two hundred and ninety days a year. Two hundred. That's what. That's what I read because I was. It, yeah. When I read that, uh, the Melbourne Storm had just mm. won the grand final, and they were talking about how they obviously they they were in that bubble, and yeah. for, for quite. But but yeah. that's, that that compares no, insignificant to really what you guys used to do every year. Yeah. Well, I remember one time we had a tour of the West Indies and we backed on that a tour to England, so we we're away nearly six months. Straight. Um, how do you keep the relationship? How you had it? How it must be very yeah. challenging. Well, you well, must have a very patient wife. Yeah, well, I think my wife was with you from the start, so she knew, she knew. What, what was going to happen, but still didn't make it easier. Mm. Uh, she may not have known to the extent. Did she no, know to the extent? Probably not. And, and early on in my career, the, the wives weren't encouraged to go on trips. So, they, they, you know, it was for a start, we weren't getting paid enough, so you couldn't really afford them to go. But then they weren't allowed to go in a lot of, a lot of situations. They weren't allowed to stay in the same hotel. They weren't allowed to get on the team bus. They really were ostracised for a lot of years, so it was extremely tough. Um, and I look back, you know, it was, you had to be pretty selfish to make it because you really were looking after yourself and the family had to suffer and, and just watch and, and be a part of it. So, um, yeah, but we, um, yeah, look at, I guess, COVID now and the bubble of players are in and saying how tough it was. I'm thinking, well, I know. Well, it is, that's it is tough, but, no, um, for sure, but you but, did it for <laughs> But we used to do it all the time, but I guess that's what you're used to. And, um, and, yeah, I guess it was probably more restrictive because I think the th- hard thing about this was that they hadn't prepared for it and they didn't know it was going to happen. We knew it was going to happen. So we knew what we're in for, but the current sports people hadn't prepared for this. You know, in a, in a team, you, there's so many different dynamics, like diff- some of those difficult players and so forth. How, how did you always bring them around as a as a captain? Because to be away that long, mm. to keep unity, you know... The- yeah, it was difficult. I mean, winning was the number one thing you had to do. Yeah, we yeah. Were winning, um, Which you did. Yeah, I think that, that made it a lot easier. I think when you don't win, um, you can paper, you can cover over the cracks when you're winning. When you're not winning, everything seems to get exposed and exaggerated, but... Really, um, you give the guys their own freedom on tour, but we always tried to get together for team dinners, and, and we were a pretty close knit group. And we get we'd regularly go out for dinner, and we'd have the nerds versus Julio's competition, where we'd play ten pin bowling or go um, go kart racing, and so we'd have all these different events as well. So we we did a lot of social. We had you know fines committee and social committee, so we get together regularly, which the current group really don't do as much. Um, we play a bit of golf, so we, it was like one big happy family really. And I remember when I was captain i think the average age of the team was was at 29 and 30 and between us we had like 40 kids so we go away for christmas in boxing day and oh, yeah. all the families get together and the kids that know each other so it was like um a big family at christmas time well mate steve look you know we could keep talking but i know you're a busy guy you've got so many interviews uh, ahead of you today <laughs> but i really really appreciate your time uh mate this book i, I just want to encourage people to to get it it's a, it's in a it's an investment. It's 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 two forty nine bucks. But I tell you, it's worth, it's worth every cent because it's something for life. It's something that the, the quality of it. Yeah, as yeah. I said, it's it's Thank more you. than a book, and uh, I'm very excited as well to to see the documentary on the ABC on the seventeenth of November as well. Yeah, thanks, man. I'm looking forward to all those things, and uh, it just proves that anything is possible. I never thought I could do this stuff. Be a photographer, and I know. Uh, Can you give me some tips? Because I am a an Instagram husband and uh, yeah, no. <laughs> forever taking oh, photos look, of my wife. Well, I get bagged I'm all the terrible, time mate. taking Instagram photos. Um, <laughs> I, I, it's funny, I see the uh, iPhone is like the T20 of cricket because anyone can do it and it's quick and it's easy and it's over. Um, using a proper camera like a Canon is like a test match because you've got to set things up, you've got to adjust it, you've got to wait, you've got to be patient and the end product is worth it. So, yeah, that... Um, yeah, photographer, it um, just proves if you're passionate and want to do something, you can pull it off. So, yeah... 
This book I'm really proud of, as I say. I think the photos are on a bit of a different level. If anyone wants to get it, they just go to my website because yep. it's self-published. That's so right. steveward.com.au, which... Um, and that's been hard work. My arms and hands are killing me because I've been know, packing books at Colonel the last three weeks and cutting hands with a standing knife a hundred times and packing boxes. Um, that's yeah, that's too it's a tough gig. That's too funny. Well, mate, thanks again for coming on. Thanks for coming no to the Spirit of Sport. And, uh, mate, I'll see you around Colonel. Thanks, mate. Coffee, Enjoyed it. Hopefully. Cheers, mate. Don't avoid me next time. Thanks, mate. <laughs> Sorry about the noise. My neighbour's sanding his deck. My motto? Don't work on your deck. Play on it. Life's good with a Trex deck. Low maintenance with a 25-year residential warranty. Trex, the world's number one decking brand.